to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. Both the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. In this episode, Paul and Mark discuss why God said it is not good for the man to be alone and why work is an essential part of human life. Let's listen in. So Mark, as we start this episode, maybe you could say a little bit more about Eve's creation and what it is that makes her creation so special. Tell us perhaps why this is so, especially in thinking about her relationship with Adam. I think that the fact that she was built from stuff taken from the man's side links her to him in much the same way as the fact that Adam and the animals were formed from the earth links them to the soil from which they came. You're right, Paul, as you observed last time, that the story has taken its time getting from God's statement that it's not good for the man to be alone to God's remedy of presenting Adam with a helper who suited him. Right. That makes sense. I remember we talked about that. It, it, it lingers, or it, I like the way I like to put it is it dawdles over the Lord's presentation of the earth's animals to Adam in order to make sure that we feel the drama. It's not good for the man to be alone, right. but will but will a suitable helper be found for him? Adam ponders and then names all of the livestock, birds, and wild animals. And I think this took some time, Paul. Sure, I think sure. he had to look at each of these animals, observe them a mm -hmm. bit, think about them before he could give them appropriate names. Interesting. So he ponders and then names all of the animals. And then we get that statement. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Mm -hmm. That's the way that the drama increases. That's the way that this is such a wonderful story. Right. It's not good for the man to be alone. Mm -hmm. But in all of creation, no suitable helper has been found for him. And indeed, none will be found unless God does something unprecedented. The Lord God has to turn away from the earth, the source from which he has formed all other life, and turn to the man himself in order to find material suitable to provide the remedy. In other words, he has to build this remedy from human stuff. The woman has to be like the man to a unique degree. The special creation of Eve Derek Kidner comments, clenches the fact 
that there's no natural bridge from animal to man. Oh, that's really interesting. You, you know, I hadn't thought of that before when you're saying that God changes the stuff of which he's making um, creatures and even Adam when he turns to create Eve. And so when you're quoting Kidner, you said that there is no, how did you put that? You said, there, there, there's no natural bridge from animal right. to man. Right, right. So, okay. So I have sort of a start of what that might means here, but can you comment a little bit further about that? I mean, for example, is this a comment from Kidner and perhaps that you're echoing here on evolution or what is he saying there? I think you're right, Paul. It's a comment on evolution. Kidner doesn't exclude the possibility that God may have used evolutionary processes in creating the plants and animals. Okay, okay. But he is saying that human beings don't just naturally come out of any evolutionary process. Uh, they are a special creation of God, something that he did deliberately and on purpose, and, and, and something that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't deliberately done it. So Kidner is saying that human beings uh, didn't evolve from the hierarchy of animals that God had created that we saw in Genesis 1. You can't get to human beings that way. In other words, what he's doing is he's clarifying that because there's no natural bridge from the animals to human beings, God was doing something new and different, that he was deliberately creating something, us, that otherwise wouldn't be, all of this, all of this is another way of reiterating what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, with its threefold repetition of the Hebrew word bara, the Hebrew word for create. Right. You remember that that made it clear, that threefold repetition made it yes. clear that God was doing something new and different. Right. But here now, the point is that God must make the woman out of the stuff that he made the man out of so that she, in fact, will have the same neshama of life, the same breath of personal life that God breathed into Adam. Okay, well, that's uh, really helpful, Mark. Thanks. And I get that from what you're saying here that there is this newness of something going on it sounds like Moses is really slowing down and taking note of something different here. It's as though the way that Moses describes Eve as being taken out of Adam in the way that she's represented to be here, that what Moses is saying is there's something really fundamentally different between Adam and Eve, if I understand you correctly, that through this different course of action – God is emphasizing that from the outset, we as human beings are fundamentally different from all the other animals. Is that right? That's right. Okay. All right. So if I'm onto it, then that raises another question that I've got, if, I'm, if what I'm saying is correct. And that is that if Adam and Eve are different in that way, but as to each other, they are so much alike. Does that then make Eve just a clone of Adam? I mean, you know, if she, right. <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, God took a couple of cells out of Adam, he genetically could have used his rib, but he could also use, you know, a freckle or an elbow. Uh, if, 
if she's just a couple of cells out of Adam genetically, then aren't you just sort of creating a clone of Adam? <laughs> yeah, good question. I think that all of us who are married know that uh, that our wives are not simply clones of us. No, good point. But I, th I think the point with the question is this. When Moses tells us that this is the way that God created Eve, what he's telling us is that in order for Eve to be just right for Adam, because that's what the compound Hebrew prepositional phrase that's uh, rendered in the New Living Bible at Genesis 2, 18 and 20 means that she was going to be just right for him. What it means is that God had to create her this way in order that she could be just right for him. And to be just right for him meant that she had to be his like opposite. That's what the prepositional phrase means. She says like opposite. She was like him because she was created out of him, but she was unlike or opposite him because she didn't simply just mirror him. She wasn't just his clone. She matched him as his complement. She completed him. She fit him like hand and glove. Interesting. So why do you think, Mark, so it, again, to say it another way, it sounds like she corresponds to him. Yeah. That, yeah. So earlier in the text, we learned that nothing really corresponded to Adam. Uh, uh, there was not a helper found that was suitable for him. Right. Here it seems like Eve corresponds to him, but why now? We'd be going along and God creates Eve in a way that isn't emphasized in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we get this, as you've explained it to us, a very big picture, holistic sense of the way the whole universe is created. And now um, God has created man with this idea of him being in a relationship. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And then Moses goes farther and says, okay, now here's Eve. And she corresponds to him. And she fits him hand in glove. But why does this come up here now? Why now? I think it comes up here now. I think that the whole second account of creation, which, of course, we've already said doesn't conflict with the first one. Right. The second account slows things down hmm. in order to show us the sort of care that God had for Adam, and in fact, mm -hmm. had for human beings, for both Adam and Eve together. I think that, that the reason it comes up now is because this second account is emphasizing that persons aren't meant to be alone, that we need fellowship with other persons, mm -hmm. and that human persons need fellowship with other human persons. The man God created required the company of another human being. In fact, ultimately of a lot of other human beings. And as we'll see, our completion through human companionship images God's fullness as a trinity of distinct persons. Mm. Mm. In naming the animals, Adam realized that none of them could fully complement him. None of them could help him in the ways that he needed. Now, of course, the Lord would always be his ultimate help and shield. The word for Eve uh, being his helper is used generally in the Old Testament for God being our helper. And, and the Lord would always have been Adam's ultimate help and shield, yet he had no companion, no one on earth yet, who could look him lovingly in the eye 
and share his bread and his bed with him and speak with him face to face. So, So the way that I like to put it is that before the woman was made, Adam could look up or down, but not straight across at someone who could relate to him as possessing the same dignity and responsibility before God as he did. After she was made, he had just such a person, and yet someone distinct enough genetically, hormonally, physically, emotionally, socially, morally, spiritually, however, enough distinct from him that she could be his true counterpart, his true counterpart, and thus help him as a partner and full companion. Yeah, that's that's really good. One of the things that just sort of popped into my head as I'm listening to you is um, that you've said a couple of times now are the ways that we learn about the way that God relates in an inter-Trinitarian way between the persons of the Trinity by looking at the way we relate. That's an extremely helpful insight, and it gives us this picture as you're saying, of human beings meeting with other human beings and um, really unlike the other animals and all the rest of creation, these other human beings can interact with us and they can provide meaningful responses. Um, You know, they hold us accountable. You think about our friendships, our marriages, our jobs for decisions that we make. Uh, If I'm understanding you right, Mark, here, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, the other humans can hold us accountable for the kind of conduct, you know, what's, what are proper manners? What are the ethical <laughs> expectations, right? Of, of each other. And because as you're saying it, this encounter is eye to eye. And this is part of, if I'm understanding you right, what it means for us to be a human. It means part of what it means to be right at the pinnacle of God's created order. Is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. And in fact, it reminds me, Paul, we had dinner together Saturday night with our wives. And uh, so we're all sitting there. And uh, no doubt, in some sense, um, hopefully not with any real worry that it wouldn't happen, we hold each other accountable to eat in a way that's civilized, where we don't just stick our heads in the plate and so on and so forth. Right. If you remember, I didn't throw food at you a single time, Mark. (laughs) That's, That's right. That's right. So, in fact, the point would be that we'd never become mature, properly functioning persons if it weren't for other persons loving us, for other persons alluring us into fuller and fuller human personhood. People who already are mature persons speaking to infants and children in such a way that they become more and more what human persons are supposed to be. Thanks. Very, very helpful. Um, hey, what about this exclamation from Adam here? This is, if I'm reading this right, I think I am. This is the first time we actually hear Adam use his voice. It's the first time we hear him speak in Scripture. And uh, here's a guy, and he lays his eyes on this woman that God has given him. And now this guy is, he's all of a sudden full of voice. He's got a lot to say. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and furthermore, the first words that he speaks are poetry. Wow, okay. The first words of a human being recorded in Scripture 
Of course, he's been speaking before and naming the animals, but none of that's recorded. The first words of a human being recorded in Scripture are poetry. It's not plain prose. It's poetry. Hmm. Interesting. Now, I think that we're supposed to get imaginatively involved with the text here. We need to ponder what's given to us here in this remarkably short form, this Mm -hmm. short poem. And here's what I think it means. I think that when Adam awoke, God brought the woman to him and in effect challenged him. Now, name this. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) And Adam saw someone who could be his full companion, who was indeed just right for him. And that's what prompted him to exclaim poetically, at last, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called... The Hebrew word here is Isha, that means woman. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Ish hmm. is one of the Hebrew words for man. Interesting. And so we've got a bit of wordplay here and wonderful wordplay. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She's a, a prolongation of my very being. And so I think Adam saw the woman that he would name Eve as completing what God meant human life to be. Mm-hmm. Kidner notes that while Adam's naming of the animals portrays him as a monarch, that his naming of Eve poignantly portrays him as, now these are kid words, kid, Kidner's words, okay. a social being made for fellowship, not power. He will not live until he loves giving himself away to another on his own level. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a statement. God made Adam as a social being made for fellowship, not power. He will not live until he loves giving himself away to another on his own level. Wow. That's great. So the woman, as Kidner concludes, is first presented wholly as Adam's partner and counterpart. Nothing is yet said of her as childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. Beautiful. Really beautiful. So here, in contrast to everything else that he could see in God's creation, Adam saw someone who matched him and thus remedied the one aspect of creation that had previously been not good. Oh, that's really helpful because we've talked about the first not good in scripture is when God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And here God actually involves Adam in the correction of that one aspect of creation prior to the fall, which was not to clear good. That's, that's new. And that's really, really helpful. And I think it goes to show what you said in a prior episode about Adam's important role as being made in God's image. I mean, here he's the image bearer. He's God's representative here on earth. And here as God's representative, he's the one by whom God is correcting things that aren't good. (laughs) That's a wonderful picture, Paul. I mean, this, this idea that he involves Adam 
in getting to the remedy of the only not good, and he involves Adam as a full human being. In other words, he takes flesh and bone from his side and builds this woman, and the man is involved all the way from there's nobody here that that matches me, that's what I need, to uh, his contributing the physical stuff. And then after contributing the physical stuff, he's involved again because God shoves this woman in front of him, says more or less name this, and Adam names her. Yeah. Comes out with this great poetry. Yeah, and that that strikes true, doesn't it? It has that sort of hint of the redemptive work of God through his through his people, through Adam here. Um, it might be maybe, hopefully not reading a little bit too much into it, but maybe it's a little bit of a type of the Lord, even in the way that God uses the new man to bring redemption to that which ails the created order. Wow, that's that would be worth that would be worth chewing over and thinking about a lot theologically. Yeah, well, thanks, Mark. This is uh, great stuff. Um, anything else? But we should we should note from Genesis two before we go on to deal with Genesis three, where we begin to look at many things that are not so good. Yeah, I think one more thing that I noticed as I worked my way through chapter two uh, was that I was struck by the way it stresses how work is essential to human beings, that to, to human being. In other words, I'm using that as a gerund uh, to the way that we are as humans and that it gives our life meaning and purpose. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you say some more about that? Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that this is really important stuff because many of us think of work as a burden. Yes. And as something to be avoided as much as we can and to get away from it as quickly as we could. I was speaking to somebody the other day who told me that her father had retired at 45. Wow. And that she had thought for a while that, boy, isn't that wonderful? I'd really like to do that too. But she's realized now that her work gives her meaning. Uh And so she says, Uh I want to go on and do it as long as I can. And she's in a helping profession. She's helping people. And and so it seems to me that that we we often make this mistake of thinking of work as a burden and as something to be avoided as much as we can. And in fact, we're going to see that work has become a burden Mm -hmm. since Adam and Eve rebelled. But it's still essential to give in our lives meaning and purpose. Now, in Genesis 1, verse 26, when God declared that he'd make us, he specified, in fact, what was going to be our primary task. Mm -hmm. Here's the way it reads in the New International Version. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and here are the great words, the important words right now, so that... They Mm -hmm. may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures who move along the ground. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may do these things. Interesting, yeah. So this work of ruling over all the other creatures is the work that we were made for. Hmm. Now, the way that Genesis 2 reiterates the same point comes up in verse 5 when it says that at first there weren't any shrubs or plants in Eden, and the reason was 
Now I'm quoting the scriptures. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. There were no shrubs, no plants, because God hadn't yet caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. As Hans Walter Wolf puts it, uh, because there was no man to work the ground, um, makes work appear as the only definition of man's proper significance. Oh, that's really interesting. The only definition of man's that, that's proper significance. That's, that's what he says. That's a strong statement. That's a really yeah, yeah, strong statement. I'm not saying I disagree, but it's very strong. Yeah. Yeah, very strong statement. Because there was no man to work the ground, makes it appear that work is the only definition of man's proper significance. Hmm. Now, other people get awfully close to backing him up on that, Paul. Okay. Uh, Henri Blochet comments that although the Lord uh, bestows gifts on those he wishes to love, he takes good care not to turn them into spoiled children by giving them responsibilities. <laughs> right. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so he wants to go on and say that so Eden, probably contrary to what most of us have thought, was, as he continues, no fairyland, hmm. no utopia. Adam received a charge to fulfill in that place. I think we, again, tend to think of Eden as just nothing but kind of sitting around in the sun and having fun. That's, right. that's not the picture here. As soon as God made Adam, and even before issuing his decisive prohibition not to eat from the forbidden tree, he took the man, as verse 15 says, and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So work is central to earthly life. So what you're saying is the, the Garden of Eden isn't Maui. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, isn't that the way that lots of us look at work? I mean, we, we look at the stress, the difficulties, and the failures of our work, everything that is associated with work in the fallen world. And it leads us a lot of us to think of work as kind of a necessary evil at best. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right, Paul. But in fact, what I think the first two chapters of Genesis are telling us is that a human life without work wouldn't be complete. Hmm. Hmm. It would be, as Klaus Westermann, one of the 20th century's most productive commentators put it, it would be an existence quite unworthy of human beings. Wow, okay. He notes that God, now I'm quoting Westerman, he notes that God put the man into a garden. The garden and the land there needed to be worked. The land was entrusted to the man who was both capable and industrious. So God's task gave purpose and meaning to Adam's life, divine purpose and meaning. Hmm. Whether we acknowledge it or not, our lives get their real meaning from God. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. And so believing the biblical account of creation means believing that work is integral to the meaning and fulfillment of human life. Because as Westerman goes on to say, the living space which God assigned to his people demands their work. The mm -hmm. living space which God assigns to his people 
demands their work. Um, remember, he was put in the garden to work it and to keep it, and he's supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So the world, even before the fall, required human labor. Hmm. When God said to our first parents, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This task of subduing the earth and having dominion over it were tasks that they were given, the work they were put on earth to do. And in fact, this work was part of what God had in mind when you surveyed all that he had created and saw that it was very good. Right. It was very good because it included having given human beings meaningful work, tasks to carry out. Yes. So the work that God assigned to Adam fundamentally informs what God has created human beings to be. In the second half of Genesis 2, we see that what makes Eve's creation so special is that she was made from stuff taken from Adam's side. This links them together and makes Eve like Adam to a unique degree. Not only that, but in Eve, Adam saw someone who matched him and who remedied the one aspect of creation that had previously been called not good. This section of Genesis chapter 2 also shows us that work isn't a burden or something to avoid, but rather it's integral to the meaning and fulfillment of human life. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'd love to hear from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. Oh.